Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. This episode is an interview with Jesse Paquette, Chief Science Officer and co-founder of Tag Bio. Before we jump into the bottom line up front, I wanted to give you a little bit of background as to what generated this interview. So I posted via the Data Mesh Learning Community LinkedIn page a question and Jesse had responded. I had posted, why isn't downstream data lineage a thing? If downstream users have to try to swim upstream to figure out where or why their data broke, wouldn't it at least be nice for upstream producers to know who, what is consuming downstream so they can alert those teams? Seems like simple empathy, no? Is this available in some tool? Jesse had responded, I see two compatible approaches from my experience. First, data quality tests. They can be as simple as, does this data field exist? Does this data field still exist? And does this data field contain any missing values? Or they can be more complicated, like, does this data field match an expected distribution of values? The suite of data tests should be run whenever a data product is updated. The second approach is versioning. The easiest indicator for why is the data different is if the data version is different than before. But there are lots of things to consider when versioning a data product. Schema version, API version, ETL codebase version, data timestamps, etc. Versioning within data products is also important for reproducibility of analysis, which is critical in the healthcare and life sciences domain, in which tagged bio is, is specifically focused. Developers of data products, not consumers, should be responsible for implementing the data quality approaches mentioned above, just as regular software developers should be responsible for ensuring that their own code has comprehensive test coverage. It's worth noting that test writing is often tedious for developers. They won't do it if they don't have to. So testing frameworks and good team practices are especially important. I think that gives you a good segue into what the episode is going to be about. As hinted at in what I just read, Jesse and I cover a lot around data testing and versioning. Jesse recommends versioning first the code used to create the data, 
you know, generally the ETL code. Second, the schema. Third, the business logic layer. And fourth, using timestamping and temporality-based versioning. On the data testing side, the burden will likely fall on the data engineering team until we can get better data testing frameworks that make it easy and scalable for other people, especially software engineers in the domain, to be able to manage that testing. Overall, it was a great interview, and I think you will learn a lot in our continuing series of interviews around data quality and data contracts. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. I want to welcome another awesome guest I've got here today. I've got Jesse Paquette from Tag Bio. Jesse, could you give the audience a little bit of an intro to yourself, and then we can jump into as well uh, your experience around kind of data mesh, and then we'll talk about kind of what generated this uh, conversation and, and where we're going to head with it. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Scott. Um, my background is well, I've been in my professional life for about 20 years. And it began as a Java developer for pharmaceutical software, bioinformatics research software. And then I went to grad school to get a, a master's degree in bioinformatics. And then I went to the UCSF uh, Cancer Center where I was a bioinformatician. So all of that was very domain specific where I was in the biomedical research space um, yet I was a programmer slash statistician. Um, nowadays they're called data scientists. Um, then about halfway through my career at the beginning of this decade, I went to lead the bioinformatics efforts at a startup in Palo Alto. And that organization had its eyes on multiple verticals, multiple industries. And so I got to experience things outside of the biomedical research space, data sets and data challenges outside of that space, uh, in in finance, in in oil and gas, in um, things like sports, retail, and from there, then I I connected with my co-founder and we started Tag Bio about eight years ago now, almost to this day, and. Since then, we've been building out our software platform, and I've been focusing mostly on the technical aspects. Uh, my co-founder's been focusing mostly on the, the capital side and, and uh, managing the, the fundraising and, and the, the business. Um, and so my experience has been primarily in the healthcare life science domain. And so many of the things that I would talk about today are going to come from that perspective, I should say that. Uh, at, at the same time, I have seen data challenges and worked on a number of data sets that are outside of the domain. Uh, and so I understand a little bit about generically how things could apply. So that's basically my background. I'm, I'm mostly a programmer. I would say if you had to ask one, a, a one word, uh, term for what I do, uh, at the same time, 
wearing multiple hats and and managing a software project, I end up finding myself being also a data engineer, a software architect, uh, salesperson. Uh, so so manager. basically, yeah. So it's a CTO job, and and all those things roll up into that CTO type job, right? Yeah, whether um, you like it or not. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I know. I know many CTOs are in that same boat of I, I want to be a programmer specifically. Um, so, and then uh, if the audience isn't familiar, could you give a little bit about uh, what is Tag Bio and and what you're um, attempting to do as well? Sure. Uh, well, so Tag Bio is now uh, a data mesh platform, and we are focusing on the healthcare life sciences vertical. I would say for at least the next year before we start to think about maybe approaching other industries, uh, being a startup, you have limited resources and you have to, you have to go after the, the best, most scalable reproducible sales model. And that typically ends up being in, in one or just a few adjacent industries. Um, this is all the advice that the accelerators and the, the venture capitalists will give you. And we're following that advice, even though earlier on, we had hoped and had bigger dreams, maybe naive dreams, that that we could be a data platform for all industries. Um, it, it turned out to be a pretty difficult challenge uh, to sell and to fundraise. So we're doing we're doing well with that now. We're we're uh, approaching our Series A round. So you can imagine how big the the company is, where we're at in terms of uh, customers and revenue. We've got uh, a nice suite of customers at the moment, all in healthcare life sciences. They do range from hospitals, healthcare providers to uh, big and small pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and we we're deploying our platform with them to to help them with big data challenges that they have, uh, domain specific data challenges. Um, and, and we can talk more about those specific healthcare life science needs if you if you're interested. Yeah, well, and I think where we can head down as well with that is you know, you've got kind of a vertical that has a lot higher of challenges around certain aspects, one being that um, the data is so incredibly domain specific, right? It's not, uh, when, when I think of healthcare and life sciences, um, you know, if you're talking about even cellular interactions and things like that, that they're so, so, you know, molecules for drug development and things like that. It's so, so specific compared to something that's totally different for, you know, chemotherapy reactions, even if people are thinking about it's just interactions with cells. It's like, no, they're, they can be very, very different. So I think that can be a, an interesting thing that, that feeds into the conversation. But um, what generated this, this conversation was, me asking on LinkedIn about why isn't there more kind of downstream lineage and that if somebody who is generating information um, in general, you know, outside of the data mesh context or even within data mesh, if you're, if you're the producer of data, it's very, very difficult to know who are all your downstream consumers. You can usually figure out who's your first order consumers but then you don't have an easy way to figure out who's consuming off of that first order. So, you know, you put, let's say you're just thinking about this in a data lake perspective and you put your data into a, a table there, you can see potentially who is consuming off of that one table. But if they're creating 
additional tables from transformations or combining that data with other um, data from, from other data products, it becomes almost impossible to figure out who's consuming it and why so that if you're going to make changes, how do you communicate that downstream so people aren't just having things, they don't wake up with the, the dashboard broken or with, you know, having been pumping wrong data into their, um, into their whatever uh, analytics process that they're using for, you know, hopefully only a few hours, but potentially days to weeks to, to months. So you, you would come up with a couple of different things that you think are helpful to that. Um, why don't we jump into where, where you're thinking about that? And we'll kind of dig into the different ways that those kind of manifest when people are really dealing with data. Yeah, sure. When I, when I saw that post uh, on, the, on LinkedIn, I, I saw the concern from the other side. I saw the concern from the consumer saying, I'm in charge of the consumption tool, the analytics platform or, or the ML platform. And I just learned that the data is broken. Why didn't we get informed about this? How could we have learned about this earlier? And it's, there are two sides to that conversation uh, with, with the provider and the consumer. And, and, and it's an interesting question about who should be responsible for what I think as I answered in the post, uh, I think a lot of the responsibility does fall on the producer. Um, the quality of data is the producer's responsibility. And, and you know, we can get into the producer's team structure and who is the owner of that data. You know, in the data mesh space, of course, everyone is looking for domain ownership of that data. So regardless of, of which groups within an organization are really owning the data product, uh, they are responsible as a producer of that data product to ensure quality as best they can. And and Scott, you mentioned uh, previously that one way to ensure data quality is simply to not change it, to not to not do anything, right? To basically say this is our our version, uh, this is our schema. It is fixed. It will always be this way. You could do that, uh, but then of course, as use cases change, as you decide that, you know what, this data product would be a lot better if we brought in and merged this other data source. And we see this a lot in healthcare life sciences. You think, well, we've got this clinical trial for these patients, but we also have all of these sensors on all of these patients. Why don't we bring in that data and see what that data can provide? So, and this happens all the time. So freezing a schema completely forever is usually a non-starter because you find out very quickly that in order to match the ongoing and, and evolving use cases in the business uh, or the research organization, you you do need to make changes. So changes yeah. occur. The, yeah, context, the context of what you're trying to share changes, it evolves. So if the mechanism for sharing that context can't evolve, what's the value in the long run, right? Like, I, I think yeah. that's kind of what you're, you're saying. So fully agree there. And I think it's, it's uh, one of those silly things that if, if we say we can't evolve it, especially if we can't add to it, but even if we can't change something where it's no longer relevant. Yeah. Or, or you might just find that something was broken in the original design. And yeah. why, why stick with an original design where something's broken? Um, and so there's that. There's also a scenario 
which is possible. We don't see this as much in our space, but I, I, I am well aware that it's possible that upstream data feeds might start sending bad data. Uh, you know, missing fields, you might end up getting uh, certain fields, you know, p- corrupted with other data from uh, that should be other things. Or, uh, well, we do have one scenario where uh, the upstream data provider loves to send us data using the wrong date time formats. Every other, every other uh, instance where they they send data, they 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 have a wrong date time format, um, and it's on them. But we should be well aware, and so that that's kind of a good place to start with practicality. So things need to break, and things things need to break quickly and in a very logged, transparent way. And the best way I think to find things that break is with testing. Um, I think if you were to go back ten years when we were sort of at the pre-Hadoop phase or, or the nascent Hadoop phase and, and NoSQL was potentially a thing, uh, but everyone was, 95% of the people were either using Excel spreadsheets or SQL databases. Um, and you can still even see today that it's probably still 85% spreadsheets and SQL databases. So the idea of testing data has only come around, I think, in the last five, 10 years. Uh, Whereas testing in the software, uh, programming the software uh, engineering space has been evolving for 20, 30 years. I would say definitely in the last 20 years, the concept of unit testing and software and and, uh, pragmatic testing of, of functional components within software has gotten to the point, whereas nowadays, you will have software teams pretty much requiring that you have close to 100% test coverage of, of functionality that goes with the software. And, and what you get with test coverage is you get failures. You get failures really quickly when things change. Um, and I think that needs to happen more rapidly on the data side, the data engineering side, where contracts are designed, where you can say, I'm going to monitor this entire schema. I'm going to monitor the structure of the schema. I'm going to monitor the inputs to that schema. And I'm going to make sure with tests that run automatically, either periodically or upon uh, updates or upon code changes, that that those tests are going to run. And when those tests do fail, that the appropriate people are notified very quickly. And so I think a testing framework on data is is the way to solve part of the problem. Now, t- test, go ahead. One question on, on testing the data, just because I've never dug into this, like testing the software, to me, it's it, it just makes sense in my head. When you think about testing the data, are you testing each piece of data in and of itself? Are you testing the overall schema? Are you test like what, what could that actually mean? Can, is, is there a way that we can dig into that a little bit around if somebody is new to the concept of data testing, what exactly are you testing and how do you do that? Yeah. So I can't pretend to have a, the best comprehensive view of all use cases here. Um, I, I think I know my context very well, uh, mostly because I wrote a lot of the code and, <laughs> and, and my team's been working on this for quite a while. So 
Um, I think there are other contexts that that other contributors within the data mesh learning community could could add here with regard to data lakes, data warehouses, SQL databases, and, and things of that nature. So when I talk about data testing, I, I'm really talking about testing the interface between the business logic of code that's working with that data and the data itself. And so what we have in our system is a very closely knit layer of business logic, which is uh, domain specific because we want to make a domain driven data product uh, so that there's a, a domain specific schema that the data is in and the business logic, which is algorithms and analysis tools and uh, queries that are domain specific that, that run on that. So uh, our testing happens mostly at the, you could call it the query level. It's really more like business logic of code that's accessing the data, but but I think abstractly you could think about it at, at the query level. So you, that would be one clear aspect where you could basically say, we've got all these queries. They're all accessing the data product. This is comprehensive. These are the only queries that are accessing the data product. Direct the data, I would say the underlying data source directly. And if you know that, then you can test all of those queries in sort of a micro scale. You can test them for whether they succeed or fail. That's the basic level. You could also then put some asserts there where you could assert if the data is the same as it was before and find out if it's different. Uh, lots of ways it could be different. Um, and so our business logic layer, I just want to make it clear, our business logic layer is part of our data product. So the consumers of our data products, which might be myriad, they might be uh, data scientists using SDKs to query the data product or analysis tools, which are third party or our own uh, front end application. All of those consumers are working through the API of our data product, which is on the other side of our business logic. So we have a nice layer where we can perform those tests and feel relatively comfortable that we have full test coverage on the data as it's needed for that data product. But I think other people's use cases might find different layers where uh, tests would be better applied. That makes perfect sense. Okay. Thank you for that. And and uh, so you were saying one aspect was testing. I think you had another aspect that you had wanted to dig into as well. Uh, yeah. On the versioning side. And yeah, versioning. Um, so we, we have to do versioning in healthcare and life sciences. In theory, we don't have to because people haven't really done it before. But if you look at the needs of the industry, particularly around anything that gets published or very specifically within clinical trials and pharma, if you submit to the FDA that we did this analysis on the data and it looks like we have a perfect evidence that our, our drug is, is successful you know, at this level higher than the standard of care, you, you need to show that to the FDA in numbers with data so that you can get through a phase of a clinical trial and hopefully get that drug approved uh, or the therapy or the device or, or whatever it is. And the FDA is going to make a contract or the European Medicines Agency, they're going to make a, a sort of a, a formal contract with you that says you can reproduce this and, and you have to you have to fulfill that contract and say, yes, we can. And so many pharma organizations and 
clinical research organizations, which are called CROs that do a lot of analysis of clinical trials and support of the clinical trials for pharma. Uh, what they do is they have a whole auditing department that comes in and audits all of the initial primary analyses that were done on the data to confirm that, yes, we were able to query the exact data and do the exact same analysis that was done before. And this is really important. So um, that's critical to the bottom line of the business of pharma, but also just for anyone who's publishing medical research, you may have seen that uh, if you look at studies that are published in the biomedical space, and you look at the amount of studies that either, if you got access to their data, you wouldn't be able to reproduce their results, or if you tried to reproduce their study and generate your own data, you wouldn't be able to reproduce their results. Um, there's 10, 15, 20, maybe more reasons why things aren't reproducible in that field. But I think so much of it comes down to uh, documentation and versioning. And, and so, so, so that's where we get back to versioning. So um, you, what can and what should be versioned? And, and you, know, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about uh, where, where versioning can cause some headaches or, or some challenges. So we version right now the, the code that is producing the data. So you can have ETL type code that is, that is processing the data into the analysis ready format that might live in the schema of the data product. So that ETL code could change and could produce something that's different. And so if that code is versioned and has a certain version tag associated with it, then you can make sure that to follow the updates on that, to follow the versions. And, and, and if you have a new version and if everything else stays the same, but you have a new version of the ETL code and your data tests break or downstream applications are crashing, then you can pinpoint that it's the ETL code that's the problem and go and investigate what the change was. Um, you can look at any schema changes because schema changes could happen and, and they, they often do. And so if you have a version on your data schema, then you have another point at which you can identify and, and locate uh, issues in, in quality. Then we also, of course, have the business logic uh, layer that I mentioned where we do a lot of our, our data quality testing. And that is a code base and that can change as well. Um, and so those are three areas that could be versioned. There's also the concept where you might have data flowing into your system. Uh, and, and this would be true in healthcare where you have new patients coming into the, the healthcare system, or you have new patients coming into a clinical trial or new uh, follow-ups with those patients in a clinical trial. And that's not necessarily a change to any of those things that I described before. You, you have the same ETL process, you have the same schema, and you have the same business logic. You just happen to have new rows, effectively. Um, those new rows might end up being different. You might have some patients, you might have one of the clinical trial centers that's not filling in the data properly and the data is coming in missing some, some key fields that you need. Um, and so then you get into the timestamping and the temporality of the data. And um, that's a fourth aspect of versioning. So our system is looking at those four. I believe that's pretty comprehensive, but I'm sure there are more that we could do um, but we find that by versioning those four things, we can 
get very close to 100% reproducibility of the analyses that happen with the data. Uh, yeah. So, so I think the first three make perfect logical sense. I think that fourth one has confused a lot of people, including myself, about when people talk about, because ver- that's versioning the data, right? And when I first started hearing about versioning the data, I was thinking that you were taking an entire snapshot of every piece of, of data within the data product, and that was a version, was a snapshot. And that's just not the case. So when you think about versioning the data, is it that it's kind of an append-only type of concept where you keep what somebody was historically and you keep the the new or does it depend on the data product you know i'm i'm especially thinking about reproducibility you know okay this person was approved uh to from taking this dosage and then we monitor for the first 4 weeks to make sure that they're ready to get a change in dosage or whatever what was the state of them at that point so that we could make that call or what, whatever that could be, you know, for life sciences. And, you know, we can think about that in different domains, but like, what do you do relative to the, the previous version of the data? Is it still kept in the same data product? Is it that you store it somewhere so that if you need to um, reproduce things from, if I were to look at what this data product looked like four weeks ago, how would I actually do that? Yeah. So I think my answer is going to be rather specific to my domain uh, in this context. Um, I think that listeners who work in other domains uh, might say this isn't going to work in my context. Um, And I think a lot of it comes down to the periodicity of the updates and and sort of the, the velocity of the updates. So if you're looking at something that is like an electronic medical record. Uh, You do have things happening to patients relatively frequently, and you do have monitors on these patients in the hospital, Um, but you can get to a pretty large granular level, large level of granularity where you could look at it daily periodicity. What happened, what are all the things that happened to this patient in this day? What were all the measurements? What were all the lab tests? What things were done to them? You could go down to an hourly level, but this is not like other industries where you might want to go down to the millisecond level where you have data that is really quickly flowing in. Uh, For example, I think if you're looking at, say, real-time web behavior where you have 100,000 users who are active on a retail website, at the same time, all making clicks, uh, and, and you have you you want to somehow have a data product which is doing something with that data in real time. That's a different beast, and and I, I'm not sure the solution and, and the approaches that we've we've put together uh, are are great for that. Um, so you mentioned the idea of a a a snapshot copy. We we do that right now. So we, we with our slower periodicity and clinical trials are a good example. Has, has rather slow periodicity. The updates come from the, the trial centers and the, the clinical research organizations, the CROs, uh, with a relatively slow periodicity and a relatively slow rate. And so you can make 
weekly snapshots of the data. You can make monthly snapshots of the data. We, we would even go down so far as to make daily snapshots of the data. Um, but our system doesn't really go more granular than that. Um, is it a diff or is it because what, what I'm thinking of is doesn't that start to become a lot on the storage side? It's compressed. So we, we our system has focused a lot on the compression of that data model and that data snapshot. So the the snapshot that gets stored is is very well compressed. Uh, we also do diffs in the the large data case. So if if a full snapshot and multiple full snapshots over time is filling up storage buckets, then we do the diffs instead. Uh, the, doing the diffs requires a bit of merging, so it takes a little bit longer, uh, and there's a fewer, you know, some more moving parts. But but that solution works in that way too. So you either have a single snapshot at a time point, or you have a base, which is is the rolled up set of diffs up until now. But now you have a new diff coming in, and so the first data product. So the data product right now, when you have new data coming in, you merge the previous snapshot with the new diff. That becomes the data product and it outputs everything, the diff merged with the original data into a new snapshot for for the long-term storage of that. Okay, interesting. Huh. Yeah, I, I, just because I'm trying to think of how other people might be looking at versioning the data within the data product um you know when you mentioned new data coming in is it that is that a new row every time or is it you know are you changing are you updating the data that's relative to um somebody or are you just appending or you know think, thinking about that it i think it is domain specific but i think it's also interesting to really go through that because uh, Every time I think I've, I've fully grokked what versioning means, <laughs> I haven't. So um, I think it's it's a deeper topic than than I think a lot of people really expect once they start digging into it because it is so dependent on what what's your need for the versioning. Is it just mm-hmm. again? Is it to track down the the issues, or is it so that you can go back and replay? Um, something that happened. And so for compliance reasons, you know, you have to have much stronger versioning versus um, do you need, if, if you're talking about a retail website, do you need to really be tracking what was somebody's address four years ago? Do you really care about that? I mean, I know you mm-hmm. probably don't in the persistence model. So why would you as well from an analytics perspective, unless you're trying to sell things based on people moving? Right. So then maybe those changes matter. But if you're just like an e-tailer, I don't understand why you would need that versioning for that far back. So it, it's it, I think it does become very dependent on what you're you're trying to do. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So, so um, you know, this is a lot of what you're talking about. Is this uh, from the consumer perspective or the producer perspective, who's, who's creating these tests and, and, you know, is some of this that you say, uh, you know, is this, who's, who's doing the testing and you say, yes, because it's both sides need to do the testing, the consuming, uh, application 
you know, or business logic has to have some test to make sure that it's not pulling in broken um, issues. But the producer also needs to test to make sure that they're finding if they broke something as soon as they can find it. Uh, and hopefully that the, the end consumer never knows. Yeah, I, I think that's basically it. I, I, in some ways, this emerging career field, this emerging role of data engineer, uh, I think is suited very well for being responsible for testing. Um, and be, because they are writing code typically, even if it's in a low code type YAML or JSON sort of framework, um, their code or the, the frameworks that they use should provide the ability to uh, check for these quality issues, check for for not just broken business logic, but also broken queries and uh, different data than, than was expected. Um, I think that's a good layer for it. Uh, I think it's a good, if we get into sort of teams and personnel side of who, who should be responsible for this, I, I think the layer of data engineers and data engineering uh, is, a, is a very good candidate for being responsible for that. Um, if, if you have, depending on how your data products are owned, whether they are very explicitly domain owned, one of the issues with domain ownership of data products in say healthcare and life sciences is that if you have PhD biologists, say cancer biologists or MDs, they're very smart people. Um, they may have even dabbled in, in writing some, some R code or queries themselves. They often have. Um, but I don't think the responsibility of data testing falls on them or, or their teams of MDs and PhDs. Uh, I do think that there, there needs to be, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm rather fortunate because in our space, um, you know, my own, my own career credentials, I've gone through a bioinformatics program in, in grad school. And there's a lot of folks out there who go through medical informatics or bioinformatics programs who are in these organizations. And they are a very nice hybrid between uh, the domain specificity of the MDs and PhDs and pure IT coders and database uh, administrators and cloud architects and things like that. So, so in my industry, those folks also can provide a very useful layer because they're often coding the analytics layer of, of the system. And the analytics layer is also a very good place to do testing, not just the testing whether your algorithm is doing the right thing, um, but also making sure that the inputs that you're getting from the data sources are the same as they were before. And, and that, uh, are they the same as in, uh, has the you know, schema or whatever, the format or however you want to talk about it, has that changed or has the semantics changed as well? Like, Both. you know, yep. yeah. Yeah, um, it, it depends. It's very domain specific at that point uh, about what, ver about what, um, about what quality they care about. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think it, um, it's still unfortunately not in their mentality because these these polyglot sort of hybrid bioinformaticians, medical informaticians, because they've had to wear so many hats. They they've sort of had to be the domain expert. They've had to be even cloud architects. They oftentimes are responsible 
for setting up a AWS system or an Azure data processing pipeline, they usually have to do a lot within these organizations. And as a result, one of the, the downsides to testing is that it's, it, it's tedious. It, it takes work. It takes diligence and dedication to, to, to do it in a, the right way, in a scalable way in a way that doesn't make people want to just gouge their eyes out because all they're doing is writing tests all the time. Uh, so I think that needs, that's the biggest need right now in the industry is both the establishment of, of good new frameworks for doing this and making it easy for people, but also there is a personnel side. And, and I love how the data mesh learning community talks so much about this qualitative change that that needs to happen within organizations and and team structures and responsibilities and ownership and i think on the personnel and processes side focus and dedication around data testing and ownership of data quality testing i think is is it's really important to me i i, I at the same time as a as a startup co-founder I see it as a big opportunity for us in the space to, to hopefully do something really new and useful, uh, hopefully before anybody else. It's, it's strange that I hadn't found this, but data contracts, data testing, to me, they all end up kind of being the same of, of <laughs> there's, it's such a low trust environment in general around data. Right. There's so low right. trust because everybody's been burned hundreds, thousands of times. <laughs> so mm -hmm. how do we make it so that there's trust without tedium? Right. Exactly what you're talking about of you need to enable the domains to be able to share their context and continuously share their context in a positive manner but that it's not that, you know, I, there's the whole two pizza team concept of, you know, four people on a team at most. And then you start to talk about how you need kind of these extra bits of expertise. Are you trying to scale up that person who's already an expert and add, you know, 15 more contexts to what they do? Or do you scale to a three, four, five, 10, 20 pizza team? You know, I don't. I don't think we've we've come to a good conclusion there. I mm -hmm. think that's still in the air as to, and and how how acceptable is it to slow down to speed up? Because right. what you're talking about is preventing fires. So you are slowing down somewhat to speed up that you're you're able to continue to do additional things because you've intentionally built your things to not have these problems, <laughs> but I don't have any answers there. That's why part of why I'm doing this is learning out loud of just going and asking people. So um, if, if you have anything to add there, I uh, would love to hear it, but I also have kind of a big question point that I think could be really interesting for our last uh, 10, 10 minutes or so, if that's all right. Yeah, I, I, I just wanted to highlight that um, that, that trust is is something that we've encountered again and again in in specifically the healthcare space, 
and, and those MDs that I talked about that have been poking and abusing Excel spreadsheets, you know, they ask a DBA to do an SQL query from them, from the EMR, and they spend months refining that SQL query with them. And then they get the data into their Excel spreadsheet and then they go, they go nuts with that. Um, what we find when we come into the picture is that we show them, look, this query that you did before that took you months, you can now do this in uh, a couple seconds. You just choose your cohort and then there you go. And the MD looks at that and sees that our query produced 735 patients in the match. They were looking at their previous data and there were 742. Okay, so there's a small difference. We have to be very careful in that situation about knowing exactly why we are different than their original query. And oftentimes it's because, oh, well, it turns out that the cohort was defined a bit differently. You just need to check this other box. You need to include these patients or exclude these patients or change the time frame that where you're doing your query. The, the answer is usually very quick and adjustable and, and fixable. But we have to be able to answer that question. We have to be able to solve that problem for them within about 10 minutes or else they will walk away and say, the system doesn't work. I don't trust it. So uh, it's, a, it's a big lesson. And, and there are going to be certain consumers who, where trust is, is sort of a you know, one strike and you're out sort of problem. Uh, and, and that is where I think the data quality testing and, and the, this quality assurance process that we're talking about is, is absolutely important. Because if those people walk away, they don't become your customer or they don't use the system that you spent so much time and, and effort in building. Yeah. And, and well, I think trust means 15 different things underneath data. I, I, when I talk about data mesh, I talk about, um, you know, the, we're raising the, the, we're maximizing the context from the domain side. And then we maximize the usability and usability to me has like 60 different subtopics. And I think yeah. trust is like, repeatability falls under trust. Can I continue to go here to get the same data and it will be the same? Can I, is the data correct? Is it accurate? Is it, you know, all of these different things, but yeah, it's, it's exactly what you talked about. Um, so you, you talked about some really good points here about, um, these MDs and, and things having to, to do so much of this coding of, you know, stuff that in an ideal world, they'd be able to focus on where their domain expertise is instead of having to do whole cloth. When we think about data mesh and a domain model, it is taking the data that is stored in some type of persistence model, some type of operating model, and changing it into a domain model to share the context of that domain. Um, especially when you're dealing with people who may not have even the software engineering background and don't have the data engineering, data analytics background, how are you working with them to take that persistence model and create that domain model? Because that that mm -hmm. ability to, to create that abstraction, um, this is this to me is the one of the two biggest challenges in data mesh. One is is the interoperability question. Um, and then the second one is the, um, we need to provide 
the abstraction to the domain so they don't have to be an expert in the data modeling as well, or that they're not having to be an expert in the infrastructure and the underlying things, and they can focus on the just the the data modeling aspect, but we also need to give them the resources to understand data modeling. We can't just say, hey, software engineer, you now also have to know all about data modeling. So you're dealing with people that don't even know the software engineering necessarily mm-hmm. as much. So would love to hear how you're working with them on that. So, I mean, we don't have enough time in the day to to talk about this topic <laughs> specifically, right? It's, um, it, it's, it's the nearest and dearest to my heart because it it sort of represents the the reason why we started TagBio. Uh, properly modeling data is 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 everything. Uh, it's everything for doing the right algorithms. It's everything for interpretability, asking questions, and it ends up being very domain specific. At the same time, I do think there are some generic, simple strategies that you can take. I, I I do think that the data warehouse model of the star schema or the snowflake schema uh, is starting to do a good job of taking a database that might have 30 tables and bringing it into sort of a focused view around a specific entity type. And that is something that we have uh, adopted, not exactly those types of schemas that I described, but if, if you're familiar with those, you can think about it as in a similar way. Uh, what we do is we bring the data into memory, into what we call an entity component system or ECS. And that ends up being a much simplified version of the data from one perspective. So in healthcare, you could look from the patient perspective or you could look from the patient encounter perspective because you have many encounters for the same patient, or you could look at the activities that happen to the patient, uh, the, the, the lab tests, the treatments, the diagnoses uh, when they occur. You could look at time points and things like that. So, so first deciding what the data product should focus on as the entity where you're going to be modeling data and asking questions. If you can decide that, then you can really simplify the schema down to what is effectively a single table. Uh, you know, on a, If you're looking at a data warehouse or star schema type thing, it might end up being uh, a, a table with some joins. Um, but ideally, and, and as we do it in our system, there are no joins. It, it, it effectively looks to data scientists who pull out data frames as if it's a single table and to many of the algorithms that are encoded in our system, it looks like a single table. Now that's not always great for all the questions because sometimes you have a question about patients, but other times you have a question about uh, treatments for a patient. You might be looking from a cost perspective and say, well, all of the times when we've been given, giving uh, IV Tylenol uh, or paracetamol for the Europeans, uh, in hospitals, you can a doctor can decide whether you're going to give a patient uh, Tylenol or paracetamol via IV, or you're going to give them a pill. The pill is slightly less effective, but it costs a whole lot less. So if you're in a hospital and you're looking at costs, you might want to look down to every instance where you've given somebody uh, IV Tylenol or or pill Tylenol. And so um, that might result in a different data product that has a different simplified schema where it's focused around the activities that happen for the patients and not just the patients themselves. And so what we find is that uh, simplifying the schema might be 30 tables, might be 100 tables, 
down to effectively what seems like a single table is really useful for downstream. But yeah, you might have to do that a few times. I was going to say is, is what you're talking about is, is a downstream data product, but the upstream where you're talking about 30 different tables, like how do you even get them to the point where they can share that data into those 30 different tables? You mean how, how does the data come into those 30 different tables? Well, so when, when I think about the way that um, data mesh typically uh, people are, are implementing it, what, what you were talking about is kind of what people are consuming off of more, which is typically a downstream data product, right? So right. the first is the upstream data product, which is just kind of, hey, we're getting all of our data out here in a way that can be queried, right? Um, mm. uh, somebody on Twitter, I think it was Jessica Joy Kerr, I think is her name, um, who said uh, that data mesh is conscious design for unknown usage, right? So mm -hmm. you're you're preparing it so that you that people can query it, but you're not tying it to that persistence model because again, how often that persistence model changes your operating model as to how you're storing it for your application, which might be a little bit different in life sciences because you might not be having a live powered application, but that that persistence model to your domain model is slightly different. Is it just such a different beast in the, the medical world because you're not really having that live performing application that I'm just not even, it's not even a concern as much? It, it is a concern and the the explicit answer is would be to drop a bunch of acronyms on you, uh, and and uh, because there's a bunch of standards in, that are that are trying to solve that problem. So so on the healthcare side, you can see a lot of efforts trying to solve that problem. With uh, uh, there's a, a, a data modeling standard called OMOP, which is trying to be a generic EMR schema. Which so you know many. Organizations use the Epic system for their EMR. Many also use Cerner. Cerner just acquired by Oracle. Um, there are others, uh, but they're all they're all vendors. They're all they're all rather specific, and 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 it can be difficult to to work with them. They have lots and lots and lots of tables, and then there are there are billing and claims. Uh, sensors and lab tests and lots of associated data that either fits in those schemas uh, in the, those vendor systems or is somewhat adjacent. So the OMOP system, the OMOP OMOP is is a good example of making a generic kind of open framework uh, schema that that people can use to to bring data into. And I see this happening a lot in the medical research side uh, because that's where a lot of that's where you get the multiplicity of vendors and the value of a huge ecosystem of, of tools is, is being able to work on top of a common standard. Uh, also very popular and emerging is, is FHIR, it's F-H-I-R. Uh, on the pharma side clinical trials, there's CDISC and a number of other acronyms uh, that relate to clinical trials formats. Um, those could be a lot better. Um, I see good things happening in the healthcare side. I, I think the the pharma and clinical trial side has uh, really really needs to evolve quickly with regard to standards. Um, but they're sort of out of our control. We can participate in communities and and 
you know, pick our favorites and, and, and we certainly try to adopt certain and build certain modules that are kind of turnkey with, with various standards like OMOP and fire and, uh, and these clinical trials formats. Um, but it's, I think one of the challenges is that it, it kind of requires an industry or a, a domain to come together and collaborate around that. Um, I think an organization might be able to do that internally as well, but that that's going to be a significant investment. Yeah, that's that's the one of the chicken and egg issues, and it comes into play in interoperability too. It's not just how can a domain share, you know, take their persistence model and make it into the domain model, but how can then we do interoperability and we need standards and uh, you know. I tried to do the the data moss, which was my terrible name, but that would be memorable for data mesh OSS uh, around trying to to get some people interested in, in building out some standards around this, so that there's interoperability at the um, data product level, and we're talking about kind of blueprints for people to create a data product. But I think maybe what you're talking about as well is to make it easy on the domains. If we have kind of some standardized schemas that they could use, not even just for interoperability, but that you give them that so that they could at least use that as a starting point. And if they want to use it, great. If they don't, great. But that they've got something where they don't. I hate the idea of people having to imagine everything whole cloth. Instead Mm -hmm. of having some kind of a reference point to jump off of, you know, it's the whole interview question of tell me about yourself versus, Mm -hmm. you know, okay, like, I see you did this, let's talk about this or, oh, I, you know, I saw you tweeted out about this activity that you like to do. Let's talk about that activity. Tell me about yourself. It's just such an awful, awful question. And it's the same thing that I'm, I'm finding is where people get really frustrated with data mesh in general is that they have to generate this stuff themselves, which I think is why you're, you're seeing the success you're succeeding, you're seeing as well, because you're able to go in and show people, this is what you can do, instead of just kind of tell them a story of what if you were able to do these things, or, you know, you tell me what you want to do with your data, instead of what if you were able to do like X, Y, and Z, and here's some, some specifics, and let's jump in and show you that that could work. So... Yeah, I, I think that's a, a good point, good place to wrap up um, yeah. around the topic of where can tools be developed that are useful across domains for implementing data mesh, and where do things really need to be domain specific? Uh, and and I think a lot of it, like you mentioned comes down to doing things quickly and showing people quickly how it could work. Um, there are probably big organizations that are preparing large budgets that are okay waiting for a year or two before things really pan out. Um, Novartis, for example, the, the big pharma uh, put together its data 42 project where it, it spent years and team of, I think 150 to 200 people, and so I don't know. I don't know what the budget is, but you can imagine uh, 150 to 200 people at a PhD or senior engineer level uh, working on this. Um, it was a very large budget, took a long time, but but they ended up having success, I believe, 
uh, at least from what they report, at, at making a really nice comprehensive system for many of their different data sources across their organization. Uh, most organizations don't have that flexibility, certainly not in trusting a startup to do like us to do, do some work. So we need to be very fast and agile. And so much of our platform and much of what we focused on is making it so that we can make one data product with minimal functionality very quickly to say, here, this is what we've done in one week. This is what we've done in three weeks with iteration, with your, your end users, with your domain experts. And now we can do a whole lot more of this. And, and I think that's, that's where you start to win people over with, with change and, and data mesh. Um, yeah. other, otherwise, you just have to really sell a huge vision. Yeah, I think the uh, I talked with Matt Darwin uh, uh, last week about um, quick wins and how you kind of have to get some momentum behind the quick wins, but you need to um, quickly start to move on to the bigger long-term wins as well of, okay, we've shown you that this thing has this value. We're going to continue to add value, but we need to focus on the the big picture as well and start to, to move that forward. So, But I do think that the quick wins or the quick ideas of this is what we could accomplish is, is a good, good place to kind of put a button on it. So, um, uh, is there anything that you wanted to cover that we didn't, or if not, like, where can people find you? I'll drop links in, in the show notes. Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, my, my Twitter account is probably too hard. I'll, I'll send you a text. (laughs) Uh, It's a bunch of letters, um, but my email address is jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at tag.bio. Very happy to uh, receive emails and, and start conversations there. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, jesse.paquette, P-A-Q-U-E-T-T-E. Uh, that's, you should be able to find me there. I think there's only a few other in the world, um, and and only one that that's sort of part of the data mesh community, which you'll be able to find. Um <laughs> And uh, the website for the for the company is tag.bio. And uh, and and Scott, thanks thanks for the time. I'd, I'd be very happy to chat again. I, I I'm super pleased that you've done all this work with the data mesh learning community. It it seems like it's almost 4,500 people now and, and growing. So, uh, congrats to you. And um, and uh, let's let's hope this really surges because I, yeah. I, I think it's a fantastic idea. I, I really, my whole reason for creating the community was that I wanted people to be able to figure out if this is right for them. And then as a community to figure out what are good practices, what are best practices so that we don't have people just trying to do this in the dark and trying to figure it out themselves that if we can share that. So um, you, you've been a great community member as well and uh, really love everything you're doing. So we'll we'll drop all those links in the show notes as well so people don't have to try and scribble it down as, <laughs> as they're, they're listening to the episode. So if, if you want to get in touch with Jesse, just go ahead and check the, the show notes. And again, thank you so much for your time today, uh, both Jesse and our listeners. I want to again thank my guest, Jesse Paquette, the Chief Science Officer and co-founder of TagBio. You can find the conversation that sparked this interview, the LinkedIn post, as well as Jesse's contact info in the show notes. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast 
somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left DataStax, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.